0: Well, Lord, we thank you for um, all that you've done for us over the last couple of months since we last got together. Thank you for uh, the fact that we could get with uh, family, and some of them came from out of town, and uh, we hadn't seen them for a while, and uh, that can really be a, that can be a great thing. Sometimes it can be an irritating thing. Uh, it's just the way it works. But we're grateful for our families. We're grateful, Lord, that... Uh, That uh, even as we exchanged presents and uh, gave gifts, that we knew, we knew what it was all about. We are so grateful that uh, you had a plan, and uh, it is somewhat of 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 a remarkable plan that takes our breath away when we think about it, that from before the foundations of the world, Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And, and that just stretches our minds and, and boggles our minds because he was, he was the Lamb that was going to be slain before there, was any sl- before there was any sin. And you could have stopped sin, but you chose not to. Now, we'll never put our arms around that. But we know that you had a plan, and through your prophets, you told what the plan would be, and uh, he was indeed... Born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet said he would be hundreds of years before. More amazingly, he was born of a virgin. A young girl who had never had sexual relations with a man. That's impossible. But as the scriptures say, is anything too hard for the Lord? We are grateful for Christmas a time when we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. We are grateful that one day, right on schedule, according to your plan, that you conceive before the foundations of the world that he will come back again. In the interim, Lord, you've called us to, to live on this earth and to fight the good fight and to go about our business and to provide for our families and to uh, just simply keep on keeping on. And it's always good, and it's always profitable uh, during our uh, busy weeks to take time to crack open the book and to be reminded of what is true. Because from the time we get up in the morning until we go to bed at night, we are surrounded by lies, and we are surrounded by half-truths, and we are surrounded by spin. And people are trying not so much to tell us the truth, but to give the appearance of truth. And quite frankly, we are sick to death of it. We are grateful that in your word you have told us the truth. You've told us the truth about life, where we came from, why we are here, what our condition is, how it can be fixed, what the solution is. You tell us how to live life. And we need to be reminded constantly of what you have to say, because there's so much propaganda around us 24-7. It's amazing what can happen in two months, and if we just look back over those eight weeks, uh, for some of us, it was really significant time. Some of us got a little bit of time off. Others of us had some things come into our lives that we did not plan on or expect, and we kind of got blindsided. I figured we'd see Lance here tonight but uh, he's not here. He's with you. We thank you for the work that you did in his life. We thank you for his friendship to so many of us. We thank you for his uh, servant's heart. We thank you for his trust in you right up to the end. He knew what the scriptures said, and he knew where he was going. The Bible says, in thy, right, in, in, in thy presence there is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. And that's where Lance is. We thank you that he was part of our lives. Now tonight, Lord, <clears throat> we've got a bunch of different needs here. We've got a bunch of different guys here coming from different places in life. Uh, different stuff is going on in our lives. You're you're well aware of of every detail. You know details in our lives that we don't even know about. So we would ask tonight that that you would meet our needs. Now, there are needs that we have that we don't even know that we have. And you're such a great God that you will meet those. You have done things for us today and uh, over this last week that we don't even know anything about we won't find out about it till we get to heaven. So we thank you for your faithfulness, and we thank you for your steadfastness and your goodness and your provision in our lives. Give us again tonight what we need. And I pray that you would give us teachable hearts. If you have something to say to us, Lord, may we not resist you. May we be uh, men enough tonight to listen to your voice. We ask these things in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We're in a new year, 2007. Thanksgiving, Christmas, Happy New Year. And when you start a new year, we all know the deal about resolutions and we all know that it's pretty common to make some plans, and, and you know, quite frankly, some years look better than other years. I'm thinking of a particular man who, at the age of 25, was uh, that particular year, the year that he turned 25, uh, he knew it was going to be a great year. Some significant things were about to happen. Number one, he had just finished a very rigorous uh, academic program and had been awarded his PhD. He had secured uh, a a significant appointment as an assistant professor at a major university. It was was quite a catch for a young guy of 25. And he was very excited about starting his, his program and his career of teaching. But more importantly than that, he was going to marry his sweetheart, Annie. They were going to have a great year as they started life together. Uh, He was a man who had grown up with uh, a lot of privilege. His father was an extremely, extremely successful businessman. And he was a young man who was starting financially in life with quite a bit. And as a result of that, he was able to do something that most people would not be able to do. He uh, He was going to plan a honeymoon, not to Niagara Falls or to somewhere close, but an extensive honeymoon for three months to Europe. And he spent a lot of time planning that and putting that together. Uh, See, it was going to be a great year, a great year. Uh, They would get married, honeymoon, come back, he would begin his academic career. Uh, They went to Europe. Everything was going great, incredible time. While they were in Germany, they were outside enjoying the gardens and the landscaping, and a storm came up. And as they were making their way back to shelter, there was a bolt of lightning that struck his wife. She was immediately paralyzed. And she would be paralyzed for the rest of her life. It was, it was remarkable that she lived through it. But uh, in that storm this young couple, both of their lives uh, instantaneously changed. And that year that he thought would be such a great year turned out to be a very, very tragic year. They've moved back, established their home. Their home was on the campus. For the next 39 years until she died, um, he rarely, if ever, was absent for her from her for more than two hours. He was her primary caregiver. Now, this man's name was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. I've got seven volumes of his theological writings on my bookshelf. Uh, he was at Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, they still have a seminary at Princeton, but it's not worth a quarter. But back then, they taught the Word of God. And B.B. Warfield was a man who knew God. Um, his schedule was very confining. He would take care of his wife, then he would go and teach a class. He would go home, take care of her, provide what she needed, go back to the office, work for a couple hours, come back. And this is how he lived his life for 39 years. They never, they never traveled again. They could never leave their home again. Uh, she was an invalid. Uh, boy, they wanted to travel. There was something new that had just been developed called postcards. And because they couldn't travel, they began to collect postcards. And they enjoyed together looking at pictures of beautiful sites and cities that they would never have a chance to visit together. That year did not turn out to be the year that he hoped it would be. That's the way life is sometimes. Sometimes we start a new year and we've got this plan and we've got this plan and we've got this plan. But it always doesn't turn out the way that we would hope. We are commencing tonight a study in the book of James. The book of James is a very practical book. Uh, it has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. The book of James deals with the reality of life. It's, uh, it is extremely practical. It gets down to the nuts and bolts of life. Uh, It deals with reality and right out of the blocks, I mean right out of the starting blocks, you're gonna deal with reality when you deal with the book of James. Now James, who is this James? Uh, James was a common name uh, in New Testament circles. There are several men in the scripture with that name and the question would be well, which James is it? And he doesn't give himself a real lofty introduction. This guy wasn't real high on his resume. He, wasn't, uh, he didn't have a, a PR guy. Uh, he just was pretty low-key. James 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. Uh, the thinking is this. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, He didn't give himself much of an introduction because he didn't need an introduction. Everybody knew who James was. Uh, You see him in Acts chapter uh, 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. You see his leadership and you see his discernment and you see how the others looked to him. Uh, He was a great leader. He he uh, He was a man who knew the scriptures. But he doesn't broadcast it. He's not putting himself up out there because it's not about him. It's about the message which God has given to him. Uh, so this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Uh, this is one of the earliest New Testament books. Uh, as you know, the, uh, the early Christians were Jews. It's always been interesting to me when you study history, certain quote-unquote Christian groups... You will find them uh, in anti-Semitic activities. That makes absolutely no sense. When you see a truly Christian group, they won't be against the Jews, they'll be for the Jews. When when God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, one of the things that God said to Abraham is this, he says, those who bless you, I will bless. So. For people to call themselves Christian and then to persecute Jews or to defame Jews or in any way to, that's not Christian. It makes no sense. Our roots is Christianity, the roots of Christianity is Jewish. Uh, Edith Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's wife, wrote a book one time with the title Christianity is Jewish. You've got to study Judaism to understand a lot which, which is in this book. So he's writing to the 12 tribes who were dispersed. This was not an easy time to be a Christ follower. I don't know if any of you guys over the Christmas break had an opportunity to see the movie that was out called The Nativity. How many of you saw it? Did you like it? I thought it was great. Uh, If if you get a chance to go see it, you would enjoy it. If it comes out on DVD, it it would be a significant addition to your your DVD library right up there with uh, Caddyshack. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's better than Caddyshack. I've never seen Caddyshack, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. I saw it for about three minutes. Anyway, uh, this is a great movie. And one of the things that that it portrays, right out of the blocks, uh, Joseph and Mary are not married yet, but in the opening minutes, you can very quickly figure out that these people were living under great oppression. Uh, Rome had a way of ruling, and uh, their method of ruling was called fear. And if there was ever a problem in a particular town or a particular city, they had a way of dealing with it. They would come in, they would find out who the troublemakers were, and they'd often just impale them and just leave their bodies right out in the middle of the city square. A little intimidating. Uh, the, these people lived under oppression. They were dispersed. And so he's writing to these, uh, to these Christians all over the empire. Uh, the book of James was a circular letter. So they'd send it out, and they'd send it out to this city, and somebody would run down the Kinkos and make a copy. That's not quite how they did it. But what they would do is they'd take the letter, and then someone very carefully would make a copy. You go to Israel today, uh, uh, when you're on your tour, you're probably going to spend a couple days in Tiberias. And there are still places in Tiberias. If you walk around Tiberias, you'll walk up the hill, and uh, you can go to several places in Tiberias. And as you're walking up the hill, you'll see Orthodox Jewish men bent over their tables, they're in rows, and you can see them copying the Scriptures, just like they have done for thousands of years. Uh, Someone made a copy, and then they would pass it on to the next city, and then someone would make a copy, and they'd pass it on to the next city. So this was a circular letter from James. Now, right out of the blocks... So, hey, we got a letter from James. Everybody's excited, they're meeting their little house church. Hey, we got a letter from James today. And right out of the blocks... What James deals with is reality. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't tell a joke. He doesn't tell a story. He just deals with reality. Uh, that's what the Scriptures do. You know, a lot of people uh, are, are disappointed sometimes when they grew up in church. I, I spoke uh, this morning Dallas Baptist University. And there are probably a thousand kids there in chapel service. They had to be there. That's why there are a thousand kids there. It was required. That's how you get kids to chapel service. And uh, sort of a captive audience. They all came in in their orange uniforms and, you know. Uh, no, nah, they were a great group of kids. But a lot of those kids, you know, it's interesting. A lot of those kids are at Dallas Baptist University. Why? Because they grew up in Baptist churches. And that's why they're at Dallas Baptist University. And a lot of those kids are cynical and a lot of those kids are hardened, and a lot of those kids are sick and tired of church because they've been in it all their lives. That's how some of us were at that age. It's possible to still be that way because when you get into a church, a lot of times you get real disappointed because a lot of times you get into church and you find out that a lot of times everyone's real nice and gracious and all that, but you get behind the scenes and there's a lot of backbiting, there's a lot of jealousy, there's a lot of gossip, there's a lot of putting knives in the back. We've all seen it. I, I love what a uh, story Howard Hendricks tells. He's been telling this story for about 180 years, but it's good. About the couple that moved to Dallas, and uh, they met him, and they told him they were real excited to be here. And by the way, um, they were looking for a church. And he started asking them some questions, what kind of church you looking for? And they began to tell him, tell him what kind of pastor they were looking for, and what kind of youth ministry they're looking for. And they had some little kids, children's ministry. And they went on for several minutes. And Dr. Henry said, well, okay, that's great. Well, gosh, you're, uh, well, you're looking for the perfect church. He said, I don't know of any perfect churches. But if you find one, don't go. You will ruin it. <laughs> there are no perfect churches. There are no perfect pastors. There are no, there's no perfect anything because... You see, all of these things involve people, and all of us are deeply flawed. All of us. Just the way it works. Um, you may have been disappointed at some time in your life by, uh, by a church, but you'll never be disappointed by Christ. You'll never be disappointed by the Scriptures. And, and what I say, when I say that, what I mean That doesn't mean you'll understand everything. That doesn't mean it'll all make sense. But I will tell you this, God tells the truth in the Scriptures. He's not conning anybody. He's not deceiving anybody. He's not giving any fairy tales. He is dealing with reality. And this is what James does right out of the blocks. Let's look at it. Verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. There's no small talk here. There's no let's get to know one another. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Right out of the blocks, what does he say? Right out of the blocks, he begins to deal with trials. Right out of the blocks, he begins to deal with difficulties. Right out of the blocks, he begins to deal with the fact that as believers, our lives are difficult rather than easy. It's always interesting talking to students. It's always interesting talking to college students. And I don't talk to them a lot, but every time I do, I'm just reminded of what it was like to be 20 years old. So the average age in that auditorium today was probably 20. They're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Average age is 20. They're just starting out in life. And if you could talk with them and if you could interview them and find out what they're thinking about life, most of those kids, most of those kids, you know what most of those kids think? Most of those, most of those guys who are going to go into business, you know what they think? They think they are going to be absolutely successful. That's what they're planning on. That They think they're going to be successful. Oh, they know things can happen, but not to them. They're going to be successful. One day they're going to get married. And you know what? They're going to have a great marriage. They're going to have a darn good marriage. Um, you know what they're thinking? They're going to have health all their life. Because they're working out and they're doing all this and you know, all this stuff. That's, see, that's what you think when you're 20. They're just starting out on life, and their perspective on life is a whole lot different. When you're fresh and when you're young, you've got a perspective on life that... The rest of us don't have. But it won't take too long for them to start to change their perspective. I I think it would be safe to say that most 20-year-olds think that life is going to be easy. And quite frankly, most of them, they've grown up in America. They're going to a private university. Quite frankly, their life is easy. Uh, Most of them aren't paying for school. Uh, Many of them went to private schools. Many of them have their own vehicles, which they didn't pay for they're affluent, white, upper-middle-class kids that have been given a lot. And when you're given a lot early, your expectation is, my life is going to be easy. Man, are they in for it. Because life isn't easy. Life is hard. It doesn't take a lot of time getting out of school to figure out that life is hard. I'm not saying they haven't had difficulties, but most of them haven't had near the difficulties that they're going to have in their 30s and in their 40s and in their 50s and in their 60s because, you see, life is hard. See, they don't have a lot of miles on their tires yet. Uh, they've, they've, they've never had a blowout. They've never had the shocks go out. They, they've just never had the chassis just fall apart. They've never blown a transmission. But we have. See, that's the way life is. Life is difficult. Life is hard. Uh, the, the, they're, uh, man, we've talked about this a thousand times. Isn't it interesting? I, I mean, it just amazes me. It amazes me how much Christian television there is. I, I just never get over it. I talk about this all the time. Because it amazes me. And they're always asking for money to expand their ministries. And, uh, and there are some good guys on there. And there are some wretched guys on there. I mean, just horrible. And they always want to expand their ministries. Help us get the word out. Well, what word are you talking about? Well, a lot of them are so far off. And one of the things they're so far off on is this whole thing about what the scriptures say about life. They never teach about suffering, they never teach about adversity, they never teach about hardship. It's prosperity, 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 prosperity. It's a false gospel doesn't mean that God won't bless us. God's been so good to every guy in this room. But God doesn't continually bless us continually, continually, continually without some adversity. One of the things that the Lord is attempting to do in our lives for you and for me, and this is pretty wild. You know what he wants to do? He wants to conform me to the image of Christ. In other words, he wants to work in my life so that I become more like Jesus. Now, listen, we're talking major change here. Because here I am, here's my personality, here's my temperament, and his desire for me is to make me more like Jesus. This is a massive, massive change process. And quite frankly, if you're like me, I really don't like change. I like life the way I've got it set up. And I've got my plans, and quite frankly, I don't want my plans interrupted. I'm not real big on change. I, I, I know what I'm comfortable with. But in order for me and in order for you to be conformed to the image of Christ, Paul says our goal is to present every man mature in Christ. Mature. Well, that's an interesting concept. In other words, he wants to grow me up. The goal of the Christian life is not to grow old. The goal of the Christian life is to grow up. That doesn't happen by prosperity, 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 prosperity. You know how that happens? It happens by trial, it happens by difficulty. That's how it happens. Change. There's a lot of change. We got a lot of change, guys, coming our ways. You look back, how long have you walked with Christ? Look back to when you started. You see any changes? Man, I hope you do. I guess the one to ask would be your wife. Any changes? You know usually when changes occur is when we get the tar kicked out of us. That's when we really get teachable. I don't like change. But change is a part of life. You know how many light bulbs? No, I got that wrong. You know how many psychiatrists it takes to change a light bulb? Just one but the light bulb must want to change. <laughs> light bulbs don't have to want to change, but you know what? People do. People have to want to change. I'm, I'm calling this series a hard-fought wisdom. And uh, the question would be, well, why would it be a hard-fought wisdom? Because verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to you. What's so hard about that? I'll tell you what's hard about that. Most of us never get to the point of asking for wisdom until we get the tar kicked out of us and we're on our face before God because of the pressure of the trial. So to get to the point where we'll ask for wisdom usually is a result of a lot of pain and a lot of sorrow and a lot of suffering. We're self-made men, we like to think. This passage is all about trials. Uh, And I've got four or five points tonight. It just depends on how the time goes. But let me give you a couple shots here on trials. That's what this passage is about, trials. First observation. Trials are inevitable. Inevitable. If you note verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It would make a major difference... In our lives, if that text said, consider it joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. But it doesn't say if, it says when. So you know what that tells me? Trials are inevitable. Trials are a certainty. Trials are guaranteed to the Christian. And anyone who tells you different is a liar. You got problems, you got difficulty, then you come to Jesus You come to Jesus, and you know what? You're probably going to get more difficulty. Now, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your sins are going to be forgiven. And you're going to be in right relationship with God as you trust in Christ and what Jesus did on the cross for you. And as he comes into your life, and he justifies you from your sin and declares you judicially righteous before God, the righteousness of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross by his sinless life, he was the Lamb of God. And what Jesus does when we realize our need and call upon him, he comes into our lives and he forgives us of our sin. He justifies us. But justification is not all there is. Now what he wants to do is he wants to begin a process of turning us into disciples. It's going to be a, see, we, we had, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. So there's a point where we're born spiritually. But it just doesn't end there because, you see, we get all excited, you know, your wife announces, I'm pregnant, oh, this is great, you know, and you go out and you buy the, uh, you know, you buy the baseball glove and the mitt and all that, and you're all excited and the football helmet and all that, and nine months later, you got a little girl. And you hadn't planned on that but you're still excited, man, how, how wonderful is this? You see, we got, we've got all our plans. Um, wh- wh- what, happens, wh- what happens is we're all excited about the birth, but the birth, hey, man, you're just getting started. Sure, you're excited about the birth, but now, now you've got 18, 20 years of work ahead of you. Because now, what you got to do is that little baby that was born has got to be grown up. It's got to be taught. It's got to be trained. It's got to be disciplined. It's got to be loved. It's got to be burped. It's got to be taken to the doctor. It's got, man, it's a lot of work. You see? So once we're birthed, the process is just beginning. Uh, One day we'll experience, so you got, Technically, you've got justification. That's when we come to Christ, and our sins are forgiven. Then you've got a process called sanctification, where we're set apart, and this is the process of growing up in Christ. And then we die, and that's glorification. That's when our difficulties and our trials are over. But in between coming to know Christ and dying, we got a load of trouble on our hands. Just how it works. It's exciting when you have... Your first baby born. But it begins the process. And you watch those little kids develop, and it's so much fun. And uh, there's that day when, when, for the first time, they, they just start a little crawl. You know, and they go six inches. Oh, look at that, you know. And then you turn around one day, and they're, suddenly they're standing up, holding hold on to the chair. Not real well. And they take a header and, you know, land on their head. It's great. Isn't it amazing any kid survives infancy? They fall down the stairs. I mean, they're just like a rag doll going down. And you run over there, and they're okay. They're smiling at you. You know you, know you got a linebacker when they're smiling after a, a fall like that. And, and, and they pull themselves up, but they're not real steady. And then a few weeks later, you look around. Next thing you know, all of a sudden, they're taking a couple steps. Hey, look at that. It's a process. They don't come out of the womb going, hey, Dad, how you doing? They don't come out of the womb walking. They've got to learn to walk. We've got to learn to walk with Christ. There's a lot of falls. There's a lot of headers. Uh, there's a lot of falling into the fireplace and getting stitches. That's just how it is. Well, that's true in the Christian life. It's a process. Uh, for a kid to learn how to walk, for you to learn how to walk when you were an infant, a lot of trial involved, a lot of trial. But, but see, as that kid is learning to crawl and straining, and it's difficult and it's hard, then you're trying to pull yourself up on that chair just to stand up and look around a little bit. And, and then one day to take a step or a couple steps. To, it's an incredible process. But, but in that process, which involves all kinds of struggle, you see, that's so critical because that's how you grow. It's the old thing in the weight room. No pain, no That's true, and That's true of kids, and it's true in the Christian life. That's why we got trials. Trials are inevitable. Trials are certain. I mentioned B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, and the events of his life that happened when he was 25. Over the break, um, I I I was reading a lot of Warfield stuff. And uh, this this man knew God. When you read his stuff, you, you have no sense of bitterness. You have no sense of anger towards God. Uh, in, in what I read, he never mentioned the difficulty with his wife and the fact that she was an invalid. They never had children, uh, probably were not able to be physically intimate because of her paralysis. That's a lot to throw on a 25-year-old guy. You know? That's, that's just a lot. But you don't pick up any uh, you don't pick up rage or anger or any of this, when you read his writings about God. He understood God, he understood the scriptures. And the fact of the matter is, you see, under this heading that trials are certain and trials are inevitable, why is that true? Well, it's true because God is in control of everything that goes on in our lives. Let me read a section to you from, uh, from Warfield. He says, we wish to belong to ourselves, and we resent belonging, especially belonging absolutely to anybody else. Even if that anybody else be God. We are in the mood of the singer of the hymn, beginning with the words, I was a wandering sheep. When he declares of himself, I would not be controlled. Well, we will not be controlled. Or rather, to speak more accurately, we will not admit that we are controlled. Now stop and think about that. See, this is grating on some of you guys already. Because You say, well, hey, I got a free will. and all. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, good. But you're still controlled. Did, did you go online and fill out an application to exist? You were nothing and you thought, this is a drag. I think I'd like to live. Did you ask to exist? No. You know why you exist? Because God decided to form you and fashion you and shape you in your mother's womb and for you to be conceived. That's why you exist. You exist because you're under the control of God. Kind of grates on us, though. Warfield goes on. He says, I say that it is more accurate to say that we will not admit that we are controlled. For we are controlled whether we admit it or not. To imagine that we are not controlled is to imagine that there is no God. For when we say God, we say control. If a single creature which God has made has escaped beyond his control, at the moment that he has done so, he has abolished God. A God who could or would make a creature whom he could not or would not control, is no God. The moment he should make such a creature, he would, of course, step down from his throne. The universe he had created would have ceased to be his universe, or rather it would cease to exist, for the universe is held together only by the control of God. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. The idea there is, He is continually upholding all things by the word of his power. So God is in control of your life and my life. God is in control of the circumstances of our life. And catch this, guys. God is in control of the trials of our life. If he wasn't in control, he couldn't say, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. How can he say that? Because he knows we're going to encounter various trials. Catch this. Because he has planned trials to be a part of the process that we go through. And no one is exempt. Isn't that interesting? God has planned trials. That kind of blows us away. In fact, uh, i got one more for you from Warfield on that very point. He says, we fancy that God controls the universe just enough to control it and that he does not control it just enough not to control it. Did you get that? Let me say it again, because it's very accurate. We fancy that God controls the universe just enough to control it, and that he does not control it just enough not to control it. In other words, what he's saying is, we don't want to say that God is in absolute control, but he is. Of course, God controls the universe, we perhaps say, in the large. But of course, he does not control everything in the universe in particular. In other words, we're okay with saying, oh yeah, God controls, you know, the big things. But not the details. You heard the phrase, the devil is in the details? Boy, is that ever wrong. God. God is in the details. I'll give you one more. Because this all has to do with trials. Because trials come into our lives. Why do trials come into our lives? Because they're inevitable. Because they're certain. Because God has planned trials into our lives. And the question, well, why would he do that? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. One more from Warfield. If this is God's universe, if he made it and made it for himself, he is responsible for everything that takes place in it. He He must be supposed to have made it just as he wished it to be. Or we are to say that he could not make the universe he wished to make and had to put up with the best he could do. In other words, if we say God is not in control, then we're saying what happens in the universe is out of his control. And he couldn't quite pull off. That's the answer. Um, uh, what is the book written by the Jewish rabbi when bad things happen to good people? And, and what he has come to is that this idea that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and God, you know, well, that's really incorrect. The fact of the matter is God isn't all-powerful. Because if God was all-powerful, then these terrible things wouldn't happen. I find it interesting that here's a man whose wife was paralyzed right out from the get-go in their marriage. Yet Warfield reads the Word of God, and he bows before the Word of God. i got to read this. i got four pages worth of stuff, and two of them I'm not even touching. He talks about the goodness of God. He talks about the plan of God. He talks about the fact that nothing can occur that doesn't fit in with the good pleasure of God. Now, this is by a man whose wife was hit by lightning. But he's talking about the fact that the wishes of God cannot be frustrated. He says it may not be apparent to us what wish of His it meets, what place it fills in the general scheme of things to which it is his pleasure to give actuality, what its function is in his all-inclusive plan. He's talking about suffering. But we know that it could not occur unless it had a function to perform such a place to fill, a part to play in God's comprehensive plan. Now you take his wife's paralysis and put it in there. Now catch this. And knowing this, we are satisfied. Unless indeed we cannot trust God with his own plan and feel that We must insist that he submit it to us down to the last detail and obtain our approval of it before he executes it. See, we want to be in control. God has a plan. But what we want is for God to submit that plan in writing to us and we'll sign off on it and then he can do his plan. God doesn't work that way. God works his plan. And God's plan for believers includes trials. So trials are inevitable. We like to think that life is under our control. It's not under your... Life is under God's control. Now let me give you a a second principle out of this passage. So number one, trials are inevitable. Number two, trials are different. He says, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Uh, That word various has the idea of multicolored. Almost the idea of polka dots. They can be orange, blue, red, green... They're they're different polka dots. Uh, um, Everybody in here is dealing with a trial. But but the guy in front of you is dealing with a different trial than the guy to the side of you. Trials come in all shapes and all forms. Uh, Some of you have a tremendous trial right now in your marriage. Maybe there's an issue of trust. Maybe it goes back to the fact that your wife was abused sexually. And when, when you were married, you knew about it, but you didn't know the implications of it. And because she was uh, sexually um, um, molested by her own father, you see, that's a huge issue in her life. A- and for any gal that has experienced such a terrible thing, it's hard for her to trust a man. Even a man that she knows loves her with all of his heart and all of his soul. I, I have a friend... And that is his experience. And he understood his wife's background, thought he understood it, but when they got married, he was very, very young. He had no idea how far down that went in her life and how it affected affect their relationship. Uh, as he said to me one time, he said, Steve, in our relationship, she's a great gal, but she's been so wounded. The best I can ever do, the best I can ever do on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, the best I can ever do is zero. I'm never plus one. I'm never in the plus column. I'm either minus or I'm zero. You know why? Because she was so wounded as a little girl. And her dad was a pastor. And she'd hear those footsteps in the middle of the night coming into that room when she was eight and nine and ten. That's why, that's why my friend never gets past zero. She can't trust a man. Now, you know what? Most guys don't deal with that. But my friend, that's his trial. Maybe yours is business, finances. Uh, for others, it's, it's health. You had it and you lost it. Uh, a, a wayward child, this, that. The fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, we all go through trials And oftentimes, we're going through a trial, and we look around, and none of our close friends are going through that same trial, and we wonder why. It's because we suffer in different ways. But everybody's going through it. The man who wrote the hymn, Old Little Town of Bethlehem, his name was uh, Phillips Brook, and he was uh, a homiletics professor. He taught young men in seminary how to preach. And you know what he said to those young men, every class he had? He said this. He said, preach to broken hearts. There's one in every pew. Number three. Trials are necessary conditioning. One more time. Trials are necessary conditioning. Necessary conditioning for what? For what? For the race. All the way through Scripture, you've got the metaphor, all the way through the New Testament, you've got the metaphor of a race. The Christian life is a race. Uh, That's what it's called. some of you guys have heard me tell this story, but in 1986, I was born and raised in California, and if you've heard me tell this story three or four times, you're really going to have to forgive me. But uh, it's a pretty good story. I mean, I enjoy it. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what you think about it. But I was born and raised in California in 1986. Mary and I picked up our three kids, and we moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, I mean, I'd always wanted to live in a foreign country. <laughs> and after a year of language school, we, uh, we fit in very nicely, and we, had a, we really enjoyed our time there. Uh, the first Sunday I was there, after the morning service, a guy came up to me, and he looked normal. Uh, he had shoes on. Uh, introduced me to his wife, uh, who was his cousin. Um, three little kids. Nice guy. He was a, a, a pediatrician. And uh, he came up to me, and he was all excited. He said, hey, Steve, I'm going out to California next weekend. I said, really? I said, what are you going out there for? He said, I'm going out for the Great Western 100. I said, great. I said, well, what is that, a car race? He said, no, it's a running race. He said, I'm an ultra-marathoner. I'm going to run 100 miles without stopping. This guy was an ultra-marathoner, and every quarter he'd run a 100-mile race. Now, this guy looked Normal. But let me tell you something. My family can't drive 100 miles without stopping, (laughs) and this guy's going to run 100 miles without stopping. And there were three or four guys in the church, and that was their hobby. And they actually published a little booklet, and the cover told the whole story. It was uh, a photograph of um, of just from the ankles down of one of the guys in his Nikes after a 100-mile race, and it looked like he'd put him through a shredder. The mesh was soaked with blood, the tread was hanging off. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, 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 to this day, I can't believe somebody would run 100 miles. Now, these, And you know what? In order to run 100 miles, and they do it every three months. And there's another. See, that one was around uh, Lake Tahoe. So they're up in the Sierra Mountains, and they start in Nevada, and they go around, go through California, come back around, 100-mile race. There's another one they do from uh, Death Valley to Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in the continental United States. It's, well, I think, 14,000 feet. So from the lowest point in the United States, all the way up to the highest. And these guys do this for fun. I mean, this is their hobby. So in order to run a 100-mile race every three months, you know what they have to do? they got to train. And they got to work out. And like clockwork, every morning at 4.30, this guy gets up, gets in his Suburban, and he drives 20 miles every morning. If it's hot, he puts on the air conditioning. If it's cold, he puts on the heater. Puts on a satellite radio, and come rain or shine, he's out driving in that Suburban. Guy's faithful. That's not what he does. That's what I do. (laughs) You know what this guy does? He doesn't get in the Suburban. He puts his Nikes on, and the sucker goes out and runs 20 miles every morning, five, six days a week. That's his workout. In other words, every morning, he chooses... He chooses pain, he chooses trials, he chooses hardship so that he can complete the race. He chooses to train, he chooses to condition. Guys, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a long race. In a sprint, you need two things. You need speed, and you need a great start. And the Summer Olympics, what, every four years, We got the 100 meters, I always try to catch that, world's fastest man. And those guys get in the blocks, and you know what, the speed is pretty much the same, steroid level pretty much the same. (laughs) Those guys get in the blocks, and you know what can make a difference? The start. When the speed's the same and the steroids are the same, the thing that can give you an edge is the start. That's why it's not unusual to see a false start or two. But in 100 meters, you don't need endurance. But in an ultramarathon, you need endurance. Hey guys, this is a long race. I love Eugene Peterson's book. I love the title. The title is, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So in order, in order to finish the race, not just start the race, but in order to finish the race, note what the text says. Consider joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. See, it takes endurance for this race—not speed, not a great start—endurance. Endurance. Endurance. Hey, hey, hey guys. Is not most of life dull? Is not most of life boring? I mean, you wake up every day, and you—not all the time—but but let's be honest. There's a lot of, there's a lot of crap. I had to think about if I wanted to use that word or not. And I thought about another one, and I thought I'd go with crap. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot of crap uh, that you got to deal with. And sometimes you get tired, and sometimes you get weary, and sometimes you think, man, this is a treadmill. I mean, I just... And, you know, and sometimes here and there there's something that happens and it's real exciting and all that. But pretty much it's just kind of, you know what it is? You're just plodding through life. And it's not that we don't have joys and we don't have things that God has done for us. You understand what I'm saying. I'm just saying sometimes life is just tedious. And you don't have a lot to look forward to sometimes. Why? Because life is hard. But what is required of a steward is that he be found faithful. He keeps showing up. He keeps punching in. He keeps doing his laps. He keeps following Jesus one step at a time. One step, one step. I'm gonna follow you, Lord. I'm not gonna be a liar. I'm not gonna live a double life. You know, my wife and I, we're not just doing real great right now, but you know what? I'm gonna love her as best I can as Jesus loves the church. Not a lot of romance right now. We just seem to be in different places. But I'm going to love her, and I'm going to stay with it, and I'm not looking around. You help me just to, just to endure here. Just to endure. That's the Christian life. And then you know what God does? He'll pick it up. And all of a sudden, things are going well again. And, you're, and she's laughing at your jokes again, and you know. And she feeds you again. It's kind of neat. And, you know. But you go through your ups and you go through your downs, you see? But but there's endurance. It takes endurance to be married a long time. It takes endurance. It takes endurance, guys. And what the trials do is the trials give us the endurance to keep going. Hey, listen, if you had the prosperity life that these yo-yos on TV are talking about, you'd never grow up. You'd never mature. You'd look like them. I mean, all you would have would be your hair and your Rolex and your diamonds. That's all you'd have. But you'd have no depth, you'd have no maturity, you'd have nothing to say that would be of any eternal value to anybody. Because when life is easy, you don't grow. Right? That's the way it works. Bill Belichick almost got into the Super Bowl again. Last Sunday night. But he didn't make it. He's won three. Uh, He's still got a long career ahead of him. He's already a legend. Three Super Bowls. Uh, What A lot of people don't know about Belichick, but I know it because my son gave me the book about his life called The Education of a Coach. And I didn't know this about Belichick. But we all know Bill Belichick is a football legend. Did you know that his dad was a legend in football in the 50s? His dad was never a head coach. His dad was an assistant coach. In fact, his dad was an assistant coach at Navy. Uh, His dad's name was Steve Belichick. And Steve Belichick, you you know, today, football coaches in the NFL and, you know, assistants and offensive coordinators and special, I would have got 97 coaches, you know. They're there from 6 in the morning till you know, 4 in the morning. I mean, these guys are just unbelievable. They're always watching film. You know who started that whole scouting thing? Steve Belichick. Bill Belichick's dad wrote a book called Football Scouting Methods. He was the first super scout. He developed scouting as we know it today when he was at the Naval Academy. He never went to any other Naval Academy's games because he was always scouting. And he devised a system. By the way, he taught his son the system when his son was nine years old. Bill Belichick's been watching film with his dad since he was nine. And there's a legend about Bill Belichick that if you give him a week to prepare, it's probably 90% of you that he'll beat you. If you give him two weeks, you're dead. And you don't even need to show up. Because of what he learned from his dad. His dad was a football legend. Uh, Back in the 50s, you know, know, the NFL didn't get big until after that New York giant baltimore Colt sudden death game in 56. Before then, it was college football. And Army-Navy used to be big. And in 1957, Army had two All-American running backs, uh, Pete Dawkins and uh, Blanchard. Navy was okay. Red Blake was the Army coach. Eddie Erdolatz was the coach for Navy. They sent Steve Belichick off to scout Army, and nobody gave Navy a chance of beating Army. But Steve Belichick had a philosophy, and his philosophy was this, find out what the other guys do best, which is always what they want to do, especially under pressure in a big game, take it away from them, and make them do things they are uncomfortable with. He filed a scouting report and gave it to Eddie Erdelatz 13 days before the Army game. The Army-Navy game came up, Navy didn't have a chance, but everything Army tried to do, they frustrated them, and they forced Army to pass, and Army couldn't pass. Navy beat Army 14 to nothing. After the game in the locker room, a sports writer came up to congratulate Eddie Ertelatz. And he laughed and he said, Don't thank me. And he pointed to Steve Belichick and he said, He won the game for us two weeks ago. In other words, the scouting, the scouting analysis and the plan that he gave us, this game was won fourteen days ago. Can I tell you guys something about the Lord? Sometimes we get discouraged and we get worn down and we, you know, we just, it's tedious and all that. Can I tell you something? You're going to win. When I say win, I mean you're going to be victorious. And you know why you're going to be victorious? Because he has planned for you to be victorious. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you, catch this, will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. He's got a plan for you, and he knows where he wants to take you. He he had a plan for you before you were born. To Jeremiah the prophet, God said, before I formed you, I knew you. Before God formed you, he knew you. He has a work for you to do. He has something for you to do. He has a plan for your life. He wants to mature you in Christ. He wants you to be a better man. He wants you to be a better husband. He wants you to be a better father. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to take you through trials which are designed to build the muscle and, and create the character that he wants you to have, and nothing is going to stop him from doing that. But he will get you there. Now here's the deal, and, I'm, and then I'm done. I don't know what number I'm on, but I'm going to the next number. Because <laughs> I'm kind of out of time, aren't I, Lou? Am I, am I already out of time? One? One hour. One minute. All right. Now, now follow this. He brought you into existence. At a certain point, he brought you to Christ. He birthed you again. Now he's growing you up in Christ. He doesn't want you to be spoiled. He doesn't want you to be a brat. He, he doesn't want you to be self-centered. He wants you to be a man. He wants you to learn how to be a servant. He wants to develop muscle in areas that you have no interest in developing muscle. But he is interested in this. He wants to grow you up. He, he doesn't want you just to, to be a couch potato spiritually. He wants to turn you into a fighting machine for the kingdom of God. You say, I don't want to be a fighting machine. Well, guess what? You've been drafted. That's what he wants for you. So what he is going to do is continue this process of trials. Not all the time, but trials are the normal scenario of the Christian life so that he can turn you into the man which he wants you to be now catch this he wants you to be a wise man he wants you to be a discerning man how does that happen in our lives well it's a battle to get there see when we get into trials when we get into difficulty verse 5 talks about wisdom we already read verse 5 if any of you lack wisdom see he's suffering then he's wisdom suffering and wisdom are always linked you know why Because for most of us, we think we got what it takes. We think we know how to make decisions. We think we can live life on our own. And what happens is the trials knock us down. The trials put us on our face. When we fail, then we look up and we say, Lord Jesus, help me. It usually takes hard knocks before we'll ask God for wisdom. But once we ask him for wisdom, he'll give us wisdom. You say, well, that's what I need. I need wisdom because I want to know why I'm going through the trial. All right, now hold on. When God gives you wisdom, it doesn't mean he'll tell you why you're in the trial. It means he will tell you how to get through the trial. That's what wisdom will do for you. So you're in a trial, and you're saying to yourself, I'm not sure I'll ever get through this. You know what? You'll get through it because he's your shepherd, and he'll walk you through it. Some of you guys, you look past through your life, and you had things that happened to you. I thought, I'll never, I'll never get through this. And guess what? You got through it. And you're a better man as a result of going through it. Some of you guys went through boot camp. You'd never do it again. It was the best thing that ever happened to you. That's how you became a man. That's how you went from a kid, smart aleck, smart mouth kid, into a man. That's what God's doing in our lives. I don't know why, Lord. You don't need to know why right now, but I'll show you how. You get up every morning, you say, Lord Jesus, I need wisdom. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. He'll give it to you. But what about tomorrow? It's not tomorrow yet. The wisdom you need to get through today, he'll promise to give to you. And days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and you get through it. And you're a better man at the other end. He's not playing games, he's not playing church. This isn't an ice cream social. He wants to turn us into men of God. That's what's going on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We don't always get answers to why. Quite frankly, that's where we have to trust. Your ways are not our ways. We wish that they were. If your ways were our ways, we'd never ask why, because we'd understand your ways. But your ways are not our ways, so we wonder why. Why is it this way? Why would a young man have his wife hit by lightning? Warfield never got the answer to that when he was on Earth. But he has been in heaven since 1921. And the moment he was in your presence, then he saw everything fully. Now, that'll happen to us one day. In the interim, you've given us wisdom. If we ask, you'll give it. And you'll show us how to get through it. We can't live this Christian life alone. That's why we need other believers around us. That's why we need the scriptures. You've given us the spirit of God. Help us to go home tonight to rest, to sleep, to get fortified and get up and follow you in the morning, asking for wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.